Welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode, I'll be reading discussing the section The Prophet in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and I'll also be having a discussion of the film A Nightmare on Elm Street to accompany the section. So let's get started. The Prophet And I saw a great sadness come over mankind. The best grew weary of their works. A teaching went forth, a belief ran beside it. Everything is empty, everything is one, everything is past. And from every hill it resounded, everything is empty, everything is one, everything is past. We harvested, it is true, but why did all our fruits turn rotten and brown? What fell from the wicked moon last night? All our work has been in vain, our wine has become poison, an evil eye has scorched our fields and our hearts. We have all become dry, and if fire fell upon us, we should scatter like ashes. Yes, we have made weary fire itself. All our wells have dried up, even the sea has receded. The earth wants to break open, but the depths will not devour us. Alas! where there is still a sea in one which could drown. Thus our lament resounds across shallow swamps. Truly we have grown too weary even to die. Now we are still awake and we live on in sepulchres. Thus did Zarathustra hear a prophet speak, and his prophecy went to Zarathustra's heart and transformed him. He went about sad and weary, and he became like those of whom the prophet had spoken. Truly, he said to his disciples, this long twilight is very nearly upon us. Alas, how shall I preserve my light through it? May it not be smothered in this sadness, it is meant to be a light to more distant worlds and to the most distant nights. Zarathustra went about grieving thus in his heart, and for three days he took no food or drink, he had no rest and forgot speech. At length it happened that he fell into a deep sleep, and his disciples sat around him in the long watches of the night and waited anxiously to see if he would awaken and speak again and be cured of his affliction. So kicking off the section for the prophet, we could wonder who exactly is this prophet that is what Nietzsche's targeting. And there's a nice little note at the back in the Penguin edition that I'm reading here, that it says that the prophet is precisely Arthur Schopenhauer. And we've had Schopenhauer turn up previously as well, especially with his concept of the will in previous sections. And so here, the whole idea of Schopenhauer coming back in is to really emphasize the way in which Nietzsche himself reflects upon the impact of Schopenhauer in his own youth. 
in which he of course did really love Schopenhauer's philosophy early in his career and then famously makes that turn against Schopenhauer's philosophy and a move towards and building upon his own philosophy and the main thing that Nietzsche wants to target is this whole idea that within Schopenhauer's philosophy is of course that big concept of will with a capital W and from all this within Schopenhauer's own philosophical outlook ultimately everything is based upon this whole desiring process of will and willing and ultimately that we are bound in a very bodily sense to our will but Schopenhauer thinks of this as only causing us suffering and then he has quite an interesting relation of course into religious outlooks because one of the main things that all organized religion touches upon is the problems of desire and desires problems relation into suffering and Schopenhauer quite similarly has an outlook to say well all our desire makes us suffer makes us miserable and ultimately we can't be happy however there is a time in which we can be happy but it's only brief and momentary a slight glimpse of happiness that occurs and that's when we listen to music because it manages to elevate us much greater than our own bodily suffering and striving and desiring that's going on and therefore temporarily makes us go into a much higher and greater realm only then to drop us back straight down into the world again and so one of the main things that Nietzsche wants to criticize is precisely that point to say well desire doesn't always just cause suffering in fact desire is a very positive thing for us in fact our desire for food in the first place and a desire for and our whole hungering process within our own bodies is a very positive thing because if we didn't have it we wouldn't live easy peasy is an example another one of course is that when we have the whole desire to live and we're having a whole desire and fighting against something even as something as simple as the common flu or even a much more horrible example of cancer then people don't want to just say well therefore i'm just going to be lounging around suffering being very melancholic but rather i'm going to get in there i'm going to fight and then i'm going to win and having that whole gonna kick its butt sort of mentality and so we have this whole sort of aspect then coming up in the next little bit in the section where Zarathustra goes into this dreamlike state and has a, this whole vivid dream. So let's continue on reading. And this is the discourse that Zarathustra spoke when he awoke. His voice, however, came to his disciples as if from a great distance. Listen to the dream which I dreamed, friends, and help me to read its meaning. It is still a riddle to me, this dream. Its meaning is hidden within it and imprisoned and does not yet fly above it with unconfined wings. I dreamed I had renounced all life. I had become a night watchman and a grave watchman yonder upon the lonely hill fortress of death. Up there I guarded death's coffins, the musty vaults, 
stood full of these symbols of death's victory. Life overcome regarded me from glass coffins. I breathed the odour of dust-covered eternities. My soul lay sultry and dust-covered. And who could have ventilated his soul there? Bright of midnight was all around me. Solitude crouched beside it, and, as a third, the rasping silence of death, the worst of my companions. I carried keys, the rustiest of all keys, and I could open with them the most creaking of all doors. When the wings of this door were open, the sound ran through the long corridors like an evil croaking. This bird cried out ill-temperedly. It did not want to be awakened, but it was even more fearful and heart-tightening when it again became silent and still all around, and I sat alone in that malignant silence. So did time pass with me and creep past. If time still existed, what did I know of it? But at last occurred that which awakened me. Three blows were struck on the door like thunderbolts. The vault resounded and roared three times again. Then I went to the door. Alpha, I cried, who is bearing his ashes to the mountain? Alpha, Alpha, who is bearing his ashes to the mountain? I turned the key and tugged at the door and exerted myself, but it did not open by so much as a finger's breadth. Then a raging wind tore the door asunder, whistling, shrilling, and piercing, it threw me to a black coffin. And in the roaring and whistling and shrilling, the coffin burst asunder and vomited forth a thousand peals of laughter. And from a thousand masks of children, angels, owls, fools, and child-sized butterflies, it laughed and mocked and roared at me. This terrified me dreadfully, it prostrated me, and I shrieked with horror as I had never shrieked before, but my own shrieking awoke me, and I came to myself. What an absolutely fantastic, dramatic image we have of Zarathustra's dream. It's really something out of like a gothic horror from literature that really that Nietzsche sets up here you have this big fortress of death as he says so maybe this big massive castle and then you have of course big dark corridor he's in then has a set of rusty keys to the doors and then silence but then a banging on the doors loud banging and a wind shrill absolutely fantastic dramatic image that's set up and of course then what happens is that the wind blows him onto the coffin that then explodes so let's keep going on then where we have then Zarathustra's disciple gonna give us an interpretation of this dream thus Zarathustra narrated his dream and then fell silent for he did not yet know the interpretation of his dream but the disciple whom he loved most arose quickly, grasped Zarathustra's hand and said, Your life itself interprets to us this dream, O Zarathustra. Are you yourself not the wind with a shrill whistling that tears open the doors of the fortress of death? Are you yourself not the coffin full of motley wickedness and angel masks of life? Truly Zarathustra comes into all sepulchres like a thousand peals 
of children's laughter, laughing at these night watchmen and grave watchmen and whoever else rattles gloomy keys. You will terrify and overthrow them with your laughter. Fainting and reawakening will demonstrate your power over them. And even when the long twilight and the weariness unto death appears, you will not set in our heavens, you advocate of life. You have shown us new stars and new glories of the night. Truly, you have spread out laughter itself above us like a motley canopy. Henceforth, laughter of children will always issue from coffins. Henceforth, a strong wind will always come victorious to all weariness unto death. Of that you yourself are our guarantee and profit. Truly, you have dreamed your enemies themselves. That was your most oppressive dream. But as you awoke from them and came to yourself, so shall they wake from themselves and come to you. So then we have Zarathustra's disciple have this immense emphasis upon the importance of laughter and this whole idea, let's say, of a mockery of his enemies. And what does his enemies focus upon is death and what does then Zarathustra have as the opposite of that is his focus on life so we have this whole image of life affirming approach going to overcome death if only other people can see how life affirming it was they would then go and to be disciples of Zarathustra as well and really you can just say well the whole aspect of death and grave watchmen and the whole, this whole idea of tombstones and sepulchres and so on is all the way in which Nietzsche set up the very idea of philosophy and philosophers being treated as almost tombstones and gravestones as in they represent precisely an idea in the past that was relevant to a specific time period but then this time period is precisely dead to us now it doesn't have any practical value to us now and all what let's say Plato and Aristotle represent is simply just a previous outdated mode of thought from ancient Greece it doesn't have any practical value for us now but returning to the idea of laughter, it's such an important concept here coming out because we can say, well, the whole idea of laughter is to then precisely overthrow and show, of course, the absurdity of an idea that's held up with such high regard and esteem that is perhaps thought to be completely infallible or completely free from any sense of ridicule whatsoever. And so we can have, let's say, a certain concept or idea held within a certain given time period as being very held in incredible high regard and esteem. But only later with hindsight do we realize that either the idea or concept or even a very discipline itself is completely absurd. And should have been brought under more scrutiny and ridicule in the given time period itself. And a great example of that is the discipline of phrenology. 
which was one based in the whole idea from psychology where ultimately you can determine somebody's psychological makeup and their characteristics solely based on the shape of their head and all the different lumps and bumps in their head so it's quite a humorous idea just to think about a professor of phrenology just looking at people on the street and especially bald people would be really good as well and they can talk to a colleague oh do you see how many bumps they have oh yes i'm pretty sure that that person is a clear psychopath because they adhere to our general consensus of what a psychopath is five bumps on the left and one on the right which of course the whole idea of phrenology in contemporary psychology is completely laughable because you cannot absolutely at all determine the makeup of someone solely through the bumps on their heads and we could also have a great brief discussion of the movie example for this section as well that really fit in nicely to this whole point for the film nightmare on elm street from 1984 directed by wes craven and the very very brief plot summary from imdb.com is the monstrous spirit of a slain child murderer seeks revenge by invading the dreams of teenagers whose parents were responsible for his untimely death. So ultimately, we have within A Nightmare on Elm Street is that the parents in the film had the whole idea of mob justice because the trial of the main villain within the movie, Freddy Krueger, was that he got off on a technicality. And so was let off for all the murder that he committed but the parents then take justice into their own hands and set his shack on fire ultimately killing him so then the whole movie is that freddy krueger is going to come and get the kids of these parents who've killed him and the main character of course in the film is nancy thompson and it follows her around as well as her friends as they're victimized and murdered by freddy krueger but it's of course not just simply the old idea of simple slasher coming to get you this is where freddy has the one up on other people like the other slashers like michael myers from halloween by john carpenter is that he comes for you in your dreams and so ultimately how are you going to escape because everybody has to dream and so tying this into the section then we can see the way in which nancy gains control for herself is through the absurdity of freddy krueger himself as a character and therefore laughing at this very heinous person therefore taking all the power and control and fear ultimately that he has over her and then she herself gaining all that control through precisely realizing that he has no power over whatsoever that all that power is just a complete illusion because she was the one that was giving him the power so all what she has to do is therefore take it away and how does she do that through laughter through recognizing the absurdity of him as a person and what he's doing and therefore then she can beat him and also on another level what's happening within the film as well is not just this great fight between good old-fashioned 
good versus evil but there's also the idea of fighting against your parents and therefore the whole idea of being burdened with the whole values and norms and so forth has been placed upon nancy herself by her parents actions then controls gained by nancy herself in the film as a character away from her parents through her actions through wanting to gain control of her own life and understand what their parents have done and then ultimately makes that great amazing transition from childhood into adulthood ultimately that happens within the film so it's not just simply on the one level of a good old-fashioned horror movie but also having that deeper relation into also development of us as people at the same time and then also what's great about horror films in general as well is that there are just great examples to use to illustrate Nietzsche's concept of will to power which is that whole idea of will to life and the whole aspect of just struggling to live and survive which you get in every single main protagonist in a horror movie is not going to simply just sit there and just say oh woe is me isn't this a terrible situation i'm in and just watch everybody suffer around them they're going to try and do something about it they're going to try and get in there prevent what's happening and ultimately kick the bad guy's butt in the end so continuing on then with the last little bit that wraps up the section thus spoke the disciple and all the others then pressed around zarathustra and grasped his hand and sought to persuade him to leave his bed and his sadness and return to them but zarathustra sat upon his bed erect with an absent expression like one who had returned home after being long in a strange land did he look upon his disciples and examine their faces and as yet he did not recognize them but when they raised him and set him upon his feet behold his eye was suddenly transformed he understood everything that happened stroked his beard and said in a firm voice well now this has had its time but see to it my disciples that we have a good meal and quickly thus i mean to do penance for bad dreams the prophet however shall eat and drink beside me and truly i will yet show him a sea in which he can drown thus spoke zarathustra then however he gazed into the face of the disciple who had interpreted the dream and shook his head so it's a really interesting little last line that rounds us off for this action zarathustra shakes his head at the disciple what does that mean does that mean that everything that we've just read and talked about for the disciple is a complete lie also what does that mean in the greater sense for the text especially when zarathustra himself calls himself a liar should we even take zarathustra and what he says at face value and so there's a really interesting point from all this as well to say should we actually be taking things at face value should we not be rather critical and always take things with a pinch of salt and try to challenge things as we go along rather than just try to accept things interestingly then zarathustra's very brief reaction says a lot 
about the whole relation between Zarathustra himself and the disciple. The disciple wants, ultimately wants Zarathustra to become popular, have lots of disciples, more people around him, ultimately to make him into some sort of great idol. Whilst Zarathustra, on the other hand, would shake his head at that whole idea. He doesn't want that whatsoever. Zarathustra doesn't want to be made into an idol. He doesn't want people to ultimately take his word and run around with it in a book and teach others and hold it with incredibly high regard and high esteem. Absolutely not what Zarathustra would want whatsoever. Why is that? Because Zarathustra doesn't want to overthrow his enemy. He doesn't want his view to ultimately take the place of the opposing view. But rather, as he says, wants it to still have value, but in such a way that you can have a nice constructive criticism of it without it completely trying to debase the opposite side altogether. And it's that whole line of prepare a good meal, but I'll still show him a good sea in which he can drown to say, well, even though I completely disagree with you, I'm still going to be incredibly respectful and charitable towards your opinion, which is something that's sometimes lost as well within arguments, is that people are so much wanting to just take the side of one person's view when the complete opposite side has to be affirmed and to be held up as having importance because without the alternative view, where would we have the debate in the first place? Then also it nicely fits into the previous section on friendship as well, that a good friend will not just simply be one who just completely just says everything you want them to say and pats you on the back and therefore is just a big suck up or yes man, but rather one who will give you nice constructive criticism and advice about what to do and about your opinions of things and taking into account other viewpoints, other considerations and opinions. And so overall, it's a really fantastic section. We have the whole relation into Schopenhauer, that fantastic gothic dream, and then the whole relation into laughter, the importance of laughter, and then wrapping up with the discussion about the importance about the opposition and their point of view and all of being charitable and respectful towards it. Many thanks for listening to the episode. Feel free to check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Feel free to also drop me a wee email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com and I can be also found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I'll hope you'll join me next time.